we're a couple minutes early, but I think we got everybody here who's going to be here, so we're just going to get things rolling. You're going to get tired of me sharing this with you every week, but I think you're going to know it uh, by the time we're done with Jude. So um, we are using a, a method of biblical interpretation. It's an um, exegetical mo- model where we're going to the text and pulling meaning out of the text rather than going to the text and forcing meaning on top of it. So we're going to actually do a quiz today because I know several of you have been here for at least four weeks and you're bound to know the answer to this. So what is the first step of biblical interpretation? Number one over here. It's grasping the text in its town. Yeah, grasping the text in its town, right, in their town. So we're trying to understand what exactly did the text mean to the author and to the original audience. Okay, so it can't mean something to us that it couldn't have first meant uh, to them. So then the second step, once we have an understanding of what it meant to the original audience, then what do we do? Got a little river running through here. Number two. Assess the difference between our situation. Yeah, excellent. So um, the term that they use is measure the width of the river. What are the differences between the original audience and the contemporary audience today? And so you can see here looking at the diagram, culture, language, time, situation, place and redemptive history, all of these things. Understand the differences between them and us because there are things that the text could have meant to the original audience that it just doesn't mean to us because we live in a different day and age. So then the third step, what's that? Excellent, thank you. Crossing the principalizing bridge. So now that we know what the differences are between them and us, we understand what the text meant to them, now we're able to figure out what is the principle that transcends, right, time and context. And then number four, Billboard here. I wish that I brought candy, Josiah would have just gotten a candy bar for that. Good job. Yeah, so uh, we're we're consulting the biblical map. We want to make sure that the principle that we're taking out of Scripture, right, is consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. Okay, and then number five. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead, decide. Yeah. Exactly right. So now that we know what the principle is, we know that the principle is consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. We now grasp the text in our town. What does it mean to us today? How do we apply it? So, excellent. So we're going to do a quick review of the things that we've covered so far. So first question that we asked when we met together, who is the author? Right? And we concluded the author is Jude, the brother of James, the bishop of Jerusalem, and also brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Right? We believe that he came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah sometime after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. Um, and so we understand from other sources that he was serving as an itinerant preacher right, among the churches in Galilee. We asked who was Jude's intended audience, and we looked at a lot of different possibilities, but we concluded that Jude is writing to first-generation Jewish Christians who are living in Galilee among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. All right, so then we ask, what is the genre of Jude? Well, it's a Jewish apocalyptic style that was very popular um, in first century Palestinian Judaism before the destruction of the temple. It's steeped in Greek speech rhetoric, right? He's using a lot of Greek speech rhetoric, um, but also Jewish midrash and Pesher hermeneutics. And somebody asked me a question after we ended last week. What is midrash? What is Pesher? So that's a great question. I'm glad that they asked it, and I want to share it with you as well. So midrash was a more exegetical approach to biblical interpretation, like what we're doing here, right, with those five steps. So they wanted to understand the scripture in its original context, identify a principle, and apply it to contemporary context. Okay, so that's Midrash. Pesher was a different exegetical school. It was a more allegorical approach to biblical interpretation, right, in which a verse of scripture is interpreted more with reference to the interpreter's own time and situation, which is usually seen as the last days. Um, so kind of the difference, if you're a, a student of church history, between the Alexandrian school of theology, right, more Pesher, more allegorical, right, versus the Jerusalem school of thought, which was more of an exegetical method. Okay, so the date of Jude, we've put somewhere within a, a decade between 48 and 58 AD, which makes it one of the earliest books of the New Testament to be written and disseminated. Jude identifies his purpose for writing in his introduction. Right? He had a long-standing intention to communicate with them, but it's been made so much more urgent by this crisis in the churches. And so his desire here is to urge his audience, his listeners, to contend for the faith that is once for all handed down. We started to look at what Jude had to tell us about his opponents, and there were three things that he'd indicated. First of all, he says that they were long ago destined or designated for condemnation. So Jude seems to believe that his uh, opponents were the subjects of prophetic condemnation, right? which goes back to this um, apocryphal book of First Enoch that we've referenced. He calls them ungodly people, right? And this is a term that shows up in the Bible, especially in the Greek uh, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. It's always contrasted against the righteous. There's the righteous and there's the ungodly, right? And Jude, by using this term, is emphasizing their antinomianism or their theology that just wants to throw away the law of God, right? They're using grace as a license to sin. And then third, he's accusing them of perverting grace into sensuality. So he's getting really specific here in the way that they're antinomian, right? Which is most certainly using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. Fourth, he says that they ultimately are denying Jesus Christ. Rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they become a law unto themselves. 
So then Jude moves into these three historic examples of how God has responded to such things in the past. First, he references the unbelieving after the Exodus, right? Quoting, or at least referencing from Numbers 13 and 14, where people after the Exodus are getting ready to go into the promised land. Spies have been sent and they've come back and they've told them there are giants in the land, right? And the people decide that they are not going to go in and take possession of the promised land in rebellion right, against the command of God, which provoked God's wrath and punishment right, because of their faithlessness. The second example that he gave to us were from the fallen angels. Um, and actually what he's referencing here is probably a little bit different than what you're used to with the story of fallen angels. It seems to be based roughly off of those first few verses of Genesis 6, which are expanded upon in 1 Enoch chapters 6 through 11. These fallen angels' rebellion against God by abandoning his creational purposes for themselves and teaching and encouraging others, humanity, to do the same, provoked God's wrath and punishment. And then his third example uh, was the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked God's wrath and punishment. So we're starting to see why he chose these three examples. They're all kind of pointing in the same direction here. Faithlessness, rebellion, sexual immorality should sound familiar. These are the things that he's accusing his opponents of. Which leads us to our text today. So hear the word of the Lord. Yet in like manner, these people also... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the angel, Archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Right, so Jude has some further indictments to bring against his opponents. He says, yet in like manner, right, so just like these previous three examples, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude's opponents seem to be relying upon dreams as a source of authority to defile the flesh, to reject proper, uh, that should be proper, not property, authority, and they are blaspheming. So we're going to look at these things one at a time. First, they are relying on their dreams. So there's two possible interpretations of what Jude is saying here. So first could just be a turn of phrase, right? to indicate that Jude's opponents are making things up to suit their desired outcomes. Um, so, for example, if you think that's going to happen, you're dreaming, right? Could, could be that Jude is speaking this way. 
Um, that seems to be the position of some of the church fathers. For instance, Clement of Alexandria, who was in the late 2nd century. Um, in his commentary, he wrote, These deluded people imagine that their lusts and terrible desires are good and pay no attention to what is truly good and beyond all good. Jude refers to those who eat, drink, indulge in sexual activity, and do other things which are common to animals who lack the faculty of reason. Okay. The second possibility is that this isn't a turn of phrase. It's actually an indication that Jude's opponents are literally relying upon actual dreams and visions as a source of revelatory authority, which supersedes the written word of God and the instructions of Jesus himself. Now, this is the position of a number of more recent uh, commentators. Uh, for example, Richard Bauckham, whose commentary on Jude has been the standard for over 20 years. Bauckham writes, The reference to relying on dreams, as most modern commentators agree, is to dreams as the medium of prophetic revelation. And Jude will have chosen the term since, although it can refer to authentic revelation, it's used rather often in the Old Testament of the dreams of false prophets. He may also have remembered 1 Enoch 99.8. The sinners of the last days will sink into impiety because of the folly of their heart, and their eyes will be blinded through the fear of their hearts and through the visions of their dreams. This information about the false teachers is not derived from the types in verses 5 through 7 and must indicate that they claimed visionary experiences in which they received revelation. This is the first real hint that Jude's opponents were guilty, not simply of antinomian practice, but also of antinomian teaching for which they claimed the authority of prophetic revelation. <clears throat> Let's look at this in the original Greek, right? So, homoios mentoi kai utoi enupnia somenoi. Sorry, that was a pretty long word there, right there. But, <clears throat> so that last word, enupnia somenoi, um, it's a participle uh, form of the verb enupnion, or to dream. And this word is frequently used in connection with prophetic dreams and visions. Uh, for example, it appears in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and in the Septuagint translation of Joel 2, 28. Right? This is where God says that your old men will dream dreams and your young men will have visions. So, two possibilities here. I don't think it makes a huge difference which way we go. It, it could be that Jude is mocking his opponents by calling them dreamers, right? Because their teaching is not based on any biblical standard, and therefore they're simply making things up. Or perhaps they're citing their own dreams as a special source of revelation and basing their teaching upon this. While it's clear throughout Scripture that God has revealed himself to his people through dreams— this is certainly not the norm. Right? It's not the normal Christian experience. In every instance where this happens in Scripture, where God communicates through a dream, it functions to help the individual to better understand their own place in his mission, rather than revealing something new about God's character or work in the world. 
So the point here is not that spiritual dreams are inherently bad. They're, they're not. Only that they're not revelatory in the same sense that Scripture is sufficiently revelatory. So whether Jude is speaking literally or figuratively, we can conclude that dreams or flight of imagination ought not trump the word of God as the final authority for Christian faith and practice. And I think that this is a fair place for us to camp out for a moment. Because it's both a very important and an eminently relevant issue to us today. Jude's opponents are not the only people to claim that their special revelation somehow supersedes the things that God has said in the past. As mentioned in the quote I read a moment ago from Richard Bauckham's commentary on Jude, the Old Testament is full of examples of false prophets who led the people of God into error against the explicit command of God. Just like the spies who returned from the land with their report. Claiming to have better insight than what had been divinely revealed. And... After the New Testament, church history has countless more examples down to our very own day and age. So before Davina and I moved into our new home, we were living in an apartment in downtown New Albany, directly across from a United Church of Christ, which proudly displayed a banner uh, on their their building uh, on Spring Street. God is still speaking. Never put a period where God has placed a comma. Another banner that they hung in their building boasted, Our faith is over 2,000 years old, but our thinking is not. While I agree that God is indeed still speaking, I suspect that I would disagree vociferously with them on the means by which God is still speaking and the actual content of God's speech. I've spent hours trolling the internet trying to see if I could find some sort of an explicit statement about what It means that God is still speaking. What are the means by which God uh, is continuing to speak? And the best that I could find was from their denominational website. All right, so first, we believe that God was revealed in the past, but also in the present and in the future. In the Bible, God was known through covenants with people and nations, through prophets and teachers, through conflicts and commandments visions and songs and through the followers of Jesus and the church throughout history and moments of compassion justice and peace in our worship sacraments prayer seeking action and silence God continues to speak you are encouraged to discover God speaking through the Bible but the word that we discover there however is not frozen in time If you explore the Bible and move from book to book, you may discover that God is revealed in different ways, sometimes even seemingly contradictory ways. At distant moments in biblical history, God speaks in new ways about God's unchanging intent of love, justice, deliverance, community, reconciliation, and peace. We're not limited by past understandings, but we seek new insights and help for living the faith today. We believe that God loves the world as much as God loves the church because our doors and windows are open. We listen for God in a variety of places in the world. And so here we go. Here's how God speaks. In the arts, in political struggles, in the sciences, in media, in education, and especially in the voices of those who are often ignored. Okay, my point here is not to dunk on the UCC. 
These views that are published on their denominational website are sadly becoming increasingly mainstream. As an experiment, I would encourage you, you might be curious to ask even people around you, and I'm not talking about the people in this room, but the people that you encounter in your daily life, co-workers, neighbors, friends, ask them, how do you hear the voice of God? I suspect that you'll receive answers invoking personal experiences, relationships, or even something I heard on a podcast. What I suspect you'll hear very little of, however, would be the Bible. Let's bring this a little closer to home. Recently, the General Synod of the Church of England met to consider liturgical innovations to offer prayers of love and faith, extending God's blessing upon same-sex couples. As the motion was on the floor for debate, the Bishop of London, Sarah Mullally, delivered an impassioned speech in favor of the new liturgy. During her speech, she argued these are direct quotations. To deal with disagreement and to find ways forward, we need a new radical Christian inclusion in the church. This must be founded in scripture and reason and tradition and theology and the Christian faith as the Church of England has received it. It must be based on good, healthy, flourishing relationships and in proper 21st century understanding of being human and of being sexual. I'm not sure how she's differentiating between founded upon and based upon, but it seems like she's giving equal merit, right, to these two categories. She says, our call is and always will be to seek the face of Christ. Yes, and each other, but above all in searching the scriptures, examining the church's tradition, and exercising our reason as we strive to make sense of how truth is to be lived out with grace in our 21st century context. The reality is that as we have done all these things, even among ourselves as bishops, our conclusions about the clear teaching of Scripture and the trajectory of the church's tradition diverge. Somehow, mysteriously, the people of God who seek God's face and who want to see the church flourish disagree. The church has begun to change. It's begun to change in a way that it does things. And I believe that we're now more aware of the need to include as many voices as possible in our deliberations, to listen to the Spirit speaking through the whole church in all its diversity. And as we have done so, we've realized how rich and transformative such conversations can be. Okay, So, looking for some source of authority alongside of Scripture, which seems to then trump what Scripture itself says. So a couple questions this raises for me. First of all, is God inconsistent? What do we do with the suggestion that Christians can arrive at such disparate conclusions after seeking God's will in God's Word? We're told in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Matthew 24.35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the issue here is not with people finding contradictions within God's word, but rather that they are not actually seeking the will of God, or perhaps they're placing his word under other authorities. Again, does God's word change? Jesus speaks very clearly about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Do you not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we've already explored in the first weeks of this study, Jude would have us contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And we know that to be the gospel and the traditions that were delivered by the apostles firsthand to Jude's audience. And these can be found in his word. Now, as Anglicans, this could not be clearer from our own formularies. From the 39 Articles of Religion, Article 6, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. So then to clarify, in the name of Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. And then Article 20, uh, specifically regarding the church and what does the church do in terms of uh, practices in the church. It says, The church hath power to decree rights or ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so beside the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. So the articles seem to speak pretty strongly about this. Um, As Anglicans, we also have the homilies, which are often ignored in our context, but these are written sermons, um, some of them, in fact, written by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer himself. And the articles of religion commend them as authoritative for us as well. So from one of the homilies, we read that man is ashamed to be called a philosopher, which readeth not the books of philosophy, and to be called a lawyer and astronomer or physician, that is ignorant of the books of law, astronomy, and medicine. Now can any man that say that he professeth Christ and his religion 
if he will not apply himself as far forth as he can or may conveniently to read and hear and so to know the books of Christ's gospel and doctrine. Although other sciences be good and to be learned, yet no man can deny, but this is the chief and passeth all other incomparably. What excuse shall we therefore make at the last day before Christ that delight to read or hear men's fantasies and inventions more than his most holy gospel? And we'll find no time to do that which chiefly above all things we should do, and we'll rather read about other things than that for which we ought rather to leave reading of all other things. Let us therefore apply ourselves as far forth as we can have time and leisure to know God's word by diligent hearing and reading thereof as many as profess God and have faith and trust in him. From another homily. The great utility and profit that Christian men and women may take if they will by hearing and reading the holy scriptures, no heart can sufficiently conceive much less is my tongue able with words to express. The ordinary way to attain the knowledge of God is with diligence to hear and read the Holy Scriptures. For the whole Scriptures, saith St. Paul, were given by the inspiration of God. The Holy Ghost is a schoolmaster of truth, which leadeth his scholars, as our Savior saith of him, into all truth. And whoso is not led and taught by his schoolmaster cannot but fall into deep error. How godly soever his pretense is. What knowledge and learning soever he hath of all other works and writings or how fair soever a show or face of truth he hath in the estimation of judgment of the world. If some man will say, I would have a true pattern and perfect description of an upright life approved in the sight of God, can we find, think ye, any better or any such again as Christ Jesus is and his doctrine, whose virtuous conversation and godly life the scriptures so lively painted and setteth forth before our eyes? Follow you me, saith St. Paul, as I follow. And St. John in his epistle saith, Whoso abideth in Christ must walk even so as he hath walked before him. And where shall we learn the order of Christ's life? But in the scriptures. Another would have medicine to heal all diseases and all maladies of the mind. Can this be found or gotten other where than out of God's own book, his sacred scriptures? If one could show but the print of Christ's foot, a great number, I think, would fall down and worship it. But to the holy scriptures, where may we see delay? Daily, if we will. I will not say the print of his feet only, but also the whole shape and lively image of him. Alas, we give little reverence or none at all. It's interesting to me because so little has changed in that period of time. That sermon is just as relevant today as it was in the 1550s. So based upon their dreaming, Jude writes that they defile the flesh. Sarkamen mian usin, right? So <clears throat> this, this word, miaino, right? It's a verb, and it means to pollute, to stain, to defile, 
to be defiled, corrupted, become ceremonially unclean. It refers to both ceremonial and moral uncleanness. That's from Mounts's dictionary. This phrase appears repeatedly, surprise, surprise, in First Enoch to describe the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through their own abominable sinful sexual acts. Bauckham writes, Jude is therefore identifying their sin is sexual immorality. Ben Witherington in his commentary writes, Apparently they saw themselves as so spiritual that they had transcended a necessity to worry about affairs of the body or deeds. Thus they could indulge in various deviant acts and claim that these were not sin since they were not under the law and that it did not adversely affect them since they were spiritual. Jude's opponents are like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom in this way, and implicitly Jude expects God to handle them similarly. So they defile the flesh and they reject authority. Right? And this is very interesting. So um, this first word, kuriotheta, uh, right? It's, it's based off of the root word kurios, which means Lord. Right? So if we go back to the very beginning of Jude, he says that they deny our only master and Lord. right? And, and now he's doing a play on that word as well. So um, koreoteta is typically translated something like um, authority um, or sovereign. right? And, and then we have this second word, athetusin, right? which is from the verb atheteo, to set aside. Right? By implication to disesteem, to neutralize or violate, to cast off, despise, disannul, frustrate, bring to naught, reject. They are rejecting Jesus and his authority. Ben Witherington again writes, The main thing that we know about these false teachers is that they reject God's law. That is, they are antinomian, recognizing no law and no divine or angelic authority over them if it means a restriction of their ways and experiences. So Jude's opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels and that they fail to acknowledge their role in the order of God's creation. Rather than submitting to their rightful position in obedience to God, they subvert his authority to pursue their own plans. So relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Right? So we have doxos, right, from which we get doxology, right? glorious ones. Um, and they, uh, here we go, blasphemousine, right, which is where we get blaspheme. So, blasphemeo is a verb to vilify, to specifically speak impiously, to blaspheme, to defame, to rail on, to revile or speak evil against, according to Strong's Dictionary. So we need to ask, who are these glorious ones that uh, Jude's opponents are blaspheming? Uh, well, possibly Moses, right, because they're casting aside Moses' law, the prophets, the apostles, Possibly anyone in any form of authority, right? Whether it be um, Jude himself or James the bishop. Um, 
Probably, however, he's talking about angels here. So, um, and this is from Ben Witherington uh, again. He, he writes, in early Judaism, the giving of the law was thought to be through angels to Moses and not directly from God himself, right? So God gave the message to the angels. The angels gave the message to Moses. Um, the Old Testament actually seems to apply this, um, and it's also confirmed in a few passages in the New Testament as well. We have Acts 7.38 and 53, Hebrews 2.2, Galatians 3.19, which all talks about an angel delivering the law to Moses. Thus, the false teacher's slander of angels was probably part of their rejection of the law. Since angels were part of the creation order, as was the law that they mediated, Jude sees these false teachers as the sodomite violators of the creation order that God made. They reject any authority that conflicts with their own. Like fallen angels, by these activities, they have abandoned their proper place in the created order. Like the Israelites, they've wandered into apostasy. Like the sodomites, they have committed sexual sin and insulted the angelic realm. The conclusion that Jude wishes his audience to draw is that false teachers malign what they do not really understand. Spiritual matters. But since they are so sexually experienced, their only real knowledge is in an area that they share with mere animals. This carnal knowledge corrupts them or will lead to their destruction. Jude's opponents... Which leads to the next portion of uh, our text that we're looking at today, this um, dispute that occurs between Michael and the devil. So we have a a few ancient uh, sources here commenting on this. Uh, First, the Venerable Bede. He writes, it's not easy to see what part of Scripture Jude got this tale from. It's an understatement. Whatever the case may be, here is what we have to learn from this incident. If the archangel Michael refrained from cursing the devil and dealt gently with him, how much more should we mere mortals avoid blaspheming, especially as we might offend the majesty of the Creator by an incautious word? Clement of Alexandria and Origen both claimed that this story that Jude is referencing was taken from an apocryphal text called The Assumption of Moses, of which no complete surviving manuscript exists, so we can't really corroborate that with what we have today. Um, Others believe that this is a rabbinical interpretive tradition that's based off of Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. So I'm going to read that passage to you. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. (sighs) 
Even without explicit knowledge of the source material, we can understand Jude's intent in referencing this event, which is to show that even the angels themselves do not assume the kind of authority claimed by Jude's opponents. In their antinomian teaching, which they would have supersede the words of Christ. Right, so this is the the uh, Todd Wheatman standard translation right here of, of this phrase. Um, so the text in Greek is really interesting, and we've got a really clear contrast. I like to diagram the text, so I'm going to show you how I've diagrammed it. I'm not sure if you can see those red lines there. Right? But we've got this hosa, hosa, right, which shows up, and it's indicating to us that there's a contrast between the first line and the second line. All right, um, and and hosa is what I've translated here as whatever things, right? So things. So there's these things and there's those things, okay? And so these things which they cannot perceive, right? We have this huidasin, right, word which uh, it, it connotates being able to see. Clearly, having vision, perceiving, knowing, understanding, right? So there's the things that they cannot perceive. And, and then on the other hand, we have um, these things, epistantai, right? Which is the root of epistemology, right? So if anybody here has ever studied philosophy, epistemology is the field by which we study how we know the things that we think we know, right? It's all about knowledge, so there's the things that they cannot know or perceive, and then there are the things that they do know or perceive, right? We have this word, um, fusikos, right? Which is like naturally or instinctually, physically, like it's just innate in them, right? And, and Judas is really pulling out um, everything he's got at them because he's, he's basically saying they're, they're illogical beasts, right? So we, we have this ta aloga, right, from, from the word logos, right, which is word or knowledge, right? So they are without logic, zoa, animals or beasts that they naturally understand. So contrast here, the things they cannot perceive and the things that they instinctually like illogical beasts know. Right? So the things that they cannot begin to perceive, the truth of the revelation of God, these things they blaspheme. But then the things that they instinctually like animals know, you know, their, their sexual inclinations, these things actually condemn them. In other words, they know nothing about the will of God, yet claim to be experts. But what they really know well is their unbridled depravity by which Jude is able to condemn them. Again from Ben Witherington. Jude 10 brings this first proof to a conclusion. For this is the first time that we hear about judgment of the sectarians themselves. Not just about the judgment of parallel examples. The false teachers have already been stigmatized as these people which rhetorically speaking serves to distance both the author and the audience from them. They're clearly the problem that generates this discourse and are the focus of this strong polemic and repeated use of the term hutoi. Right? It shows up in Jude 8, 10, 11, 12, 16, 19, 
those people. It's an example of anaphora, as our author keeps reminding the audience that he's talking about the same troublemakers who have come into the church. All right, and I see that we're at time, so I'm going to go ahead and and, um, open it up to questions. It's 842. If you've got kids across the way who need to be picked up, feel free to go, but we'll open it up for questions. Yeah, John? Got sort of an aside question. In the very beginning, you, you said read more, more, really digest. What do they mean by mark? Is that like inscribe it on your heart, or does it mean actually write notes on it or something? Yeah, good question. So I actually use, uh, that's the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Um, I've used it uh, personally to develop an uh, um, inductive approach to Bible study, right? So uh, I read it out loud and then I mark it. I start to break it down to its most basic sections. So I, I have a journaling Bible where I just go with colored pencils and I mark it, right? You saw me diagramming the text a little bit earlier. That's... Um, that's what I do, right? Mark it, really break it down, make observations, slow down, understand the text before you start to inwardly digest it. Yeah, Miguel? I, I had a question about, so with the assumption of Moses thing and the, the dialogue about Michael there, mm-hmm. um, I'm not for sure where I've heard this, but I feel like there are some, I'm not sure if it's medieval, because medieval tended to get a little bit looser with some interpretive terminology, mm. or if it has maybe Jewish roots or something, but isn't there a lot of times in in certain eras in church history there's references to Michael and Christ in parallel where certain things that Michael does seem to be mm. prophetically enacting certain things that Christ does? Is there sort of a because I'm even thinking about like the relevance of that to like the temptation text today. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't there some some history there? But I'm like missing. Okay. It it is certainly a school of thought. Okay. Yeah. Which I'm not gonna agree or deny. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's out there. <clears throat> yeah, Johnny. Cannot perceive. Yeah, they don't perceive as Is he implying that there are things that no one can perceive, so that they're not, or is he implying that these people specifically, because they are so focused on their lower impulses, mm-hmm. have lost the ability, any ability they might have had? To yeah, yeah, good question. So, uh, for those of you who couldn't hear, the question was about that last passage with the contrast between the things that they cannot perceive and the things that they know instinctually. And those things that they can't perceive, is that because no one can perceive them, or is it specific to his opponents that they just can't seem to perceive it? Um, I'm inclined to go with the latter. Um, I, I think that's a theme that shows up in biblical literature all over the place. Um, so, for instance, there's that uh, account in 1 Samuel um, where Samuel, the little boy, is under the care of Eli, the prophet. And uh, Eli is fat and he's basically blind. 
And the author uh, of that text really plays on his physical blindness because they're indicating he's also spiritually blind to these things. And you've got that story where um, Samuel keeps hearing a voice calling him, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, what's going on? So he goes to Eli thinking it's Eli calling him. And Eli's, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep, kid. So after the third time that Samuel comes to Eli, Eli finally realizes, oh, it must be God calling Samuel. And he tells him in the text, um, the next time that you hear your name called, I want you to, uh, to respond, hineni, um, which the Hebrew word there is, is also contained division. Uh, uh, what it actually means is look at me, look at me. And it's playing on this like spiritual blindness versus sight. Um, the same thing happens in Genesis, um, uh, Genesis 22. Right? There's the passage where Abraham has been commanded by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And um, so he, he takes his son and they're walking on the way towards the, the altar where he's going to sacrifice. And, and Isaac says to his father, Father, look, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, we've got the knife, but where's the sacrifice? Right? And, um, and Abraham responds to him, um, Yahweh Yireh, right? The Lord sees. The Lord sees. And at the end of that passage, even though Abraham couldn't see what God was doing by faith, he, he moved forward into that action, right? And then all of a sudden, he turns and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And then what does he name the mountain, the place of sacrifice? Yahweh, Yahweh, right? The Lord sees. So I, I think that there's this play on spiritual blindness, right, that Jude's picking up on. And I think... You're good to catch it. I think his original audience would have caught that too. Yeah, great. Any other questions? All right, well, we will pick up next week, starting with the way of Cain and then Balaam's era and Korah's rebellion.